I thought it was all about me and my issues and addictions and problems, thought it all meant something. And what I really started to see is that it doesn't. It's experience that moves through us. None of this is this stable thing that has anything to do with who we are. It's one narrator that's constantly talking, pulling in what our senses bring in, pulling in old thoughts, old memories, and just telling a story about it. No one on earth has ever been stuck in a feeling forever. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. I hope everybody had the merriest of holidays and the happiest of New Year's. Hopefully we're all ready for 2020. And this is the perfect episode to start off 2020. I know New Year's often comes with the whole New Year's resolution thing, but in this episode, we're going to look at a whole reframe. Maybe you really can break your habits. Maybe you really can start new habits. Because maybe it's not even about habits. Yes, guys, paradigm shifts here. Ever since I read Amy Johnson's book, The Little Book of Big Change, I've been telling everybody about it. I knew I had to get her on the podcast. And I also knew if I got her on the podcast, she would be the episode to start off the new year. So here it is. I think you'll walk away from this episode so inspired, so renewed, and you might just experience some pretty radical mind-blowing, life-changing epiphanies about our life, our experiences, our habits, all the things. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash habits. I am Himalaya Partner Cho, and if you follow the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance, so definitely check that out. Also, please join me in my Facebook community, that is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting Plus Real Foods Plus Life. We discuss all the things there habit change, mindset, health, diet, genetics, anything you'd like to talk about. I would love to see you there. Hi, friends. Welcome back to the show. So, I am beyond thrilled to be here today with somebody I've been dying to talk to ever since I read her amazing book that listeners are probably familiar with because I talk about this book all the time, especially on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. But I am here with Amy Johnson, PhD. She is a psychologist, coach, author, and speaker. And she has a groundbreaking approach and honestly paradigm-shifting perspective of how habits work in our body and how we can really get freedom from them and I was going to say embrace willpower, but we'll talk about that. (laughs) It's just really a revolutionary shift in changing our really habits and things that can really burden us and bring us down and we can really make change for the better. That book that I talk about all the time, it is The Little Book of Big Change, The No Willpower Approach to Breaking Any Habit. So Amy or Dr. Johnson, thank you so much for being here today. Thank you so much for having me, Melanie, and call me Amy, please. Oh, thank you. (laughs) You can call me Melanie, obviously. (laughs) So your book, and I was just telling you this before the call. So I've read a lot of books 
on habits because most of us, I think, struggle with habits or behaviors, you know, to different extents. They might be, you know, really intense and really, you know, debilitating in somebody's life, or they might just be small things. But I think all of us do struggle, you know, with behaviors that we would rather not have. So, I mean, I feel like I've read so many books and it wasn't until I read The Little Book of Big Change that so many things clicked for me. And ever since then, I've just been talking about it left and right. <laughs> I'm like, do you have any habit that you want to address or urges, which we'll talk about, you know, check out this book. So first of all, just thank you so much for your work. It is amazing. Oh, that's awesome to hear. I'm so glad. Well, so I thought to start things off. So you have a very interesting and relatable history as to you know, why you came to this whole habit world. Would you like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal diet and health history and how that led to where you are today? Sure. Let's see. So I, even before diet and health, I experienced a lot of anxiety as a young person. I mean, starting from the time I was really young, like a little kid. And it's just, you know, I didn't really know what it was as you wouldn't if you're six or seven. And it changed forms and shapes over the years. So, and the symptoms changed, the way it showed up changed, that I just kind of never felt well and was worried a lot and all that good stuff. And so at some point it turned into panic attacks. And at some point the panic attacks kind of started to subside. And I found myself really kind of obsessed with food and weight loss and not even food from a healthy perspective, but it just gave my mind kind of something to settle in on. You know, if I could count things and restrict things and give myself goals that didn't mean anything, it's like was some way that I could kind of, that I felt anyway at the time, like I could kind of keep the anxiety at bay. Now, of course, I didn't really know that at the time. So what happened is I just started really sort of restricting and trying to be kind of quote unquote healthy. And then my brain said, no, we're not doing this. And so I started binge eating just as a, because I hadn't eaten in forever, you know, and just kind of what a brain would do to kind of find that, that balance and that homeostasis. It kind of went too far in the other direction. And at the time, you know, I just was like, okay, I'm sick. I have all these diagnoses. Like this is a problem. There's nothing good about this. This just shows my weakness. It didn't occur to me then that it had anything to do really. And and this is crazy because I was a psychologist at the time. We're studying to be one. But it didn't really even occur to me that this had anything to do with the anxiety or anything like that or that there was much deeper of a place to look. It just looked like, wow, now I have this bulimia type thing and it's got a hold on me and I'm a victim to it and I need to just work my butt off to get it to go away. And you know, I didn't really know how to do that. I did every kind of every kind of self-help and spiritual and psychological and all of that thing I could get my hands on. I tried it with, you know, the right foods and diet and all that and that never worked. And what I really started seeing is like, wow, the more I push, no matter what that looked like, the more I push for like the perfect diet, the perfect exercise plan, the perfect mantras, whatever the worse it got all the time. And so that was me for a while, <laughs> several years. And then I came across this understanding that I wrote about and that we can talk about that was just completely changed all of it. I mean, it turned everything I'd been doing completely on its head. It showed me a totally different place to look. And within 
really quickly. I don't even remember at this point, but weeks, months. I mean, I I knew right away when I came across what we'll talk about that I wasn't going to be in this eating issue for much longer. It didn't fall away instantly, but I knew it just automatically looked different. And I knew, okay, I'm, I'm going to be free of this. Whereas like literally the previous week, I thought I'm going to have this my whole life. So that alone <laughs> was pretty huge. Yeah. So it just kind of got me looking more and more in this direction and then eventually sharing it. Yeah. I think a few things that you touched on that I really related to, and I think listeners will as well, especially we are on the intermittent fasting podcast. I mean, we get so many questions about things that you just spoke about as far as like weight loss and weight gain and this really intense search for control. Like when you were talking about, you know, the scale number, I think so many people, we weigh ourselves and like you were saying, like it's an arbitrary number. It doesn't like mean anything. And yet it's just this grasp to have some sort of control in life and deal with, you know, an underlying issue that could better be likely addressed some other way. And then the other thing I was really relating to, and you talk about this in your book was trying all these different modalities and like, you know, seeing different therapists, you know, maybe it's about your past and maybe it's about this and maybe it's about that. When really maybe there is a solution in the present moment that I'm so excited to talk about that doesn't even require engaging in all of that, even though that may, you know, play a part, which we can, we can discuss. So I feel like we've been teasing it a lot. (laughs) So what was this, this paradigm shift that you had when it comes to what was the, the root cause, at least in perpetuating that anxiety and that, that behavior that you wanted to be free of? Yeah. Well, so I talk about this all day, every day, and have for years now, and it's still really hard to talk about. So I'll just say like, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk, and we'll uncover it. But just for people listening, especially if you're kind of new to this, you know, don't try to grasp this with your mind as like a strategy or the next approach or what is the paradigm here or anything. Just just kind of listen casually because I think that's how it tends to, to land best. But essentially from... Right now, today, when I look back and kind of remember remember it from today, I saw a couple major things. One, everything previous was, like I mentioned, okay, I have anxiety. I have a problem. I'm not okay. There's something wrong that needs to be fixed. Now, many people who especially get a little obsessive around food and diet have, like you said, kind of that, it's not even a thing we have, but our mind tends to be more a little controlling, maybe a little perfectionist, maybe runs a little hot, I say, like a car that kind of runs hot, you know, like our mind might kind of run hot a little bit. And then it's like, it's not about food. That's not about actually even about control, but it's like when a mind is running hot and trying to nail everything down and and make everything perfect and controlled, it'll grab anything it sees. And food just happens to be one of those things. So so one of the things I saw was that this anxiety thing that was such a problem, that was such a flaw, and then this eating disorder thing that looked like such a solid thing and was such a problem. (laughs) It sounds crazy, but I really saw like, wow, that's not a problem I need to go out and fix. Like these diagnoses, these issues, like even my experience, what I ate yesterday, how I feel, none of this is this stable thing that's fixed, that is that has anything to do with who we are, that means anything in and of itself until we start to kind of look at it that way and then give it a bunch of meaning. So in other words, like if we could kind of slow it down or look at it in a different way, 
it was very easy, obviously, to say, yes, clearly I meet the criteria for you know, panic disorder and anxiety and bulimia and whatever. Because when you look at that really big high level, when you say, okay, what did you, how many times did you do this last week or feel this last month or whatever? Sure. You fit in all kinds of, you check all kinds of boxes and you can put all kinds of labels on all of us. But moment to moment, I was just feeling stuff as we are, all of us always. And what kind of really created the problem, if we want to call it that, the issue was that in those moments, the stuff I was feeling, I was basically misunderstanding. I thought it was all about me and my issues and addictions and problems. And I thought it all meant something. And what I really started to see is that it doesn't. (laughs) It's experience that moves through us. And again, by it, I mean everything, every thought, every feeling, every behavior, all of our psychology is this human experience that we're all flooded with for our entire lives. And it isn't as it appears. It isn't as personal or stable or meaningful as it appears to be. Yeah, I think that is such a radical shift in thinking. And do you think then, like if we never had these labels, anxiety, depression, eating disorder, all these diagnoses or diagnoses (laughs) that we're faced with, I mean, do you think, I don't want to say that they wouldn't, these conditions wouldn't exist, but do you think things would look like completely different as far as people in society seemingly dealing with these issues if like we never had given a name to them? Totally. And so that doesn't mean that the labels and names are all bad and we shouldn't use them or anything like that. But I think what you're pointing to is really big that if we didn't have a memory, let's say, and thank God we do. But if we didn't have a memory for me, like I can remember this in my binge eating days so clearly, if I could just wake up with amnesia, I'd just be there in the moment in my bed in a brand new day, just in life. But I didn't wake up with amnesia. I woke up thinking about every single thing that I'd eaten the day before. I woke up thinking about how I was going to go weigh myself and what I was going to eat that day. And there's absolutely no question that's what created all of my suffering. <laughs> like, how could it not? That that was it. That was the only problem. Otherwise, I was just a woman waking up in her bed. So memory is huge. And then yes, like these labels. And and again, I'm not saying they're all bad. They have some great, we need them in some way, but there's a lot we can understand about them. But without this like, oh, here's who I am. I'm a person with this issue. I shouldn't feel this way. This is a bad thing. Like, if we didn't have all that, we would just be feeling life and it would just be coming and going as it does all by itself all the time. And we would just be in this flow of life. We would look very much like children who they don't care if they're in a bad mood or a good mood. Like they might care. I'm sure they prefer to be in a good mood, but they don't tell a story of like, oh, look at my mood this morning. I sure hope there's nothing wrong with me. Like they're just, they're just in life. They feel everything and they feel it in huge ways, as we know, and it just moves right through them. And we look at them and say, wow, that kid, they're so resilient. They're so lucky, you know, and we have the exact same design. I mean, we don't outgrow that. But the difference is kind of what you're saying. It's like our memory, our labels, all the meaning. Our adult mind makes that stuff up and it's been fed to us by society, obviously, too. But it's like it's made up. It's essentially made up. And when we cling to it and and don't realize it's made up and treat those concepts and all those labels as if they're real, it totally creates 
what we're talking about. Oh my goodness, Amy. So so I personally struggle with a lot of digestive issues and IBS and then just the brain in my head trying to make all these connections that like, oh, I ate this, so it created this. Or maybe if I eat this this way, then it'll do this. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to myself and to other people, I'm like, if I could just forget everything that I knew, everything that I've read about what will digest, what won't digest, everything I've been told about what may or may not be happening in my digestive tract, I honestly think my IBS would be gone like tomorrow. And I know that sounds crazy, but it's just so powerful what you were saying, these stories that we tell ourselves and how it just perpetuates so many things. So, I mean, you you just talked about like, is do you, so do you think, do we truly wake up to a blank slate, like you said, is all of the things that stay with us, is it really just in our memory and our brain? Or I guess what I'm asking is, do you really think there is the potential in any moment for it to be a blank slate? Or are there things so embedded that we just can't escape them regardless? That's a great question. So as you were saying that about your IBS, here's the thing. I I agree with you. I think if you had no memory and no if like your symptoms, let's not even call it IBS, if like the stuff you feel in your body, the sensations that happen in your body that you experience were neutral, if they just were like, oh, this is happening, that's happening. If it wasn't like it shouldn't be and this hurts and I don't like it and all the stories and all the fix-its and all that weren't there, you would just be, I mean, either way, you're just in this fluid flow of experience moving through you, but it doesn't feel fluid and it doesn't change that often because your mind is in there giving it all the judgment, right? Should and shouldn't and all that. And then we focus on it and blah, blah, blah. So without all that, I think we'd still feel stuff, obviously, like things would happen and physically just the machine of your body would do whatever it needs to do but your experience would be 100% different. And the thing that is kind of there beyond the labels and the evaluation and the judgment is what I usually just call wisdom, but we can call it whatever we want. But it's like just even in the physical, let's say, like the form of our body, we're not even talking anything spiritual or anything yet, like just in the, the form of our body. I mean, you know, like it's just full of intelligence. There, There's no, it is an mind-boggling, mind-blowing, like how much intelligence is built in to just our body and how much kind of natural, this natural kind of inclination for it to just sort of fix itself and get through things and move forward and evolve and expand. And the same is true of our mind. Like there's so much wisdom kind of baked into that. So you might wake up and not have all this thinking about what IBS is and what you should do and all that stuff. And you'd feel something and, and there would be something else there. It's called wisdom. It's our, it's like something much deeper than your psychology and your intellect that naturally all the time, even now moves you toward certain things things and away from certain things. So it's like we're kind of being guided through life by the intelligence that is us, by our essence that is us. And then we also have these minds that are full of the memory and the judgment and all that. And they're wonderful. Like I'm never ever saying anything bad about the intellect, but it should be kind of secondary. It's it's me. It's a kind of designed, you know, to like supplement the intuition and the wisdom and all that natural, all those natural instincts. But unfortunately, we've, you know, kind of grown up in a society that favors the intellect above everything else. So that's where our mind says, oh, I'll take care of this. I'll get myself out of this mess. And that's what I saw after all those years of everything I tried, ironically, got me deeper into it. 
And it was just so frustrating. So it's like, wait a minute, I'm smart. I'm resourceful. Like this shouldn't be so hard, but it's because we're handing it off to the wrong tool. You know, we're giving it to our intellect rather than seeing that we have all this innate health and wisdom that's there beneath our intellect, beneath our psychology. So I don't know if that's like a direct answer to your question, but it, but it's a great, I think it kind of points to what you're talking about. You know, it's like there is something beyond our psychology and we don't need to make our lives or our health work. Oh my gosh. Like they're good on their own. If anything, us and our minds and our psychology and memories and all that tend to get in the way more than they are necessary. Yeah. And I'm, you're speaking to this difference between thought and experience. And I mean, it's ironic because I feel like we're using our prefrontal cortex right now and we're, you know, discussing it intellectually. So why do you think, so, cause you're talking about, you know, experiencing something and attaching you know, it could just be neutral. Like we don't have to attach any judgment to it or any meaning to it. We could just experience it. And I, I've been thinking a lot about that recently, especially just like how things I may experience that really, you know, bother or distress me. Another person could experience that same sensation and it wouldn't bother or distress them. I often think about things like being in traffic, for example, doesn't bother me at all. Like, I'm like, okay, I can listen to a podcast. I can, you know, it really doesn't bother me. My mom, on the other hand, drives her like crazy and she like freaks out. And it's like, I'm just like, mom, calm down. But then I could be in a situation that personally distresses me, like having maybe some digestion issues. And that like distresses me so bad. Whereas another person might have GI issues and be completely fine, you know, like not distressed by it. So I guess, you know, in the ideal world with what you're saying, we reach this place where we can't just experience anything and, and, it, and it would be just an experience. Why do you think for certain people, certain things become so distressing and do get these stories and do turn into this rumination, but they don't for other people? Like, is there is there a reason for that? There is. So first of all, like we all have stuff that is full of meaning and drives us crazy. And on the flip side that we get super happy and excited about, you know, like we all have that, right? And and like you're saying, it's different for everyone. And I love like even just that really simple example of traffic. Like it really kind of helps us see, even though we we deeply know this, but we're so caught up in just the conditioning of how everybody else thinks and how we talk that obviously nothing is inherently anything. So traffic is not inherently stressful or troublesome in the least. I mean, you have a blast in traffic if you have a good podcast, right? Like there's nothing wrong with it. Same with any kind of digestive issues. And that's like some of these get a little harder for people to see. Same with death. Same with losing your job. You know, there's nothing inherent in anything. So I don't want to say that to people like, I don't know. I want I want to put that out like everyone listening like see what you see in that. But that's just how I see it, right? It's like there's nothing inherent in anything. All of the meaning, judgment, evaluation in literally every single aspect of every moment of everyone's life is coming from our own mind, from our own personal use of like our personal thinking. Now, we all have a mind that works in pretty much the same way. So the purpose of the mind in part is to tell stories is to give meaning, is to put things on a linear timeline. It wants to know what came first, second, third, and what's going to happen in the future. And it wants to remind you what happened in the past. It's just how a mind works. And I 
I love, like I want to write a whole book about that. Like it's just how the mind works because when we can start to see, oh, this is why I get so caught up here, but not over there. Or this is why this pushes my buttons or brings me all this fear. And then these other things don't. It, like we can just relax around it and we start to even kind of think it's cute and funny and amusing sometimes. Like, wow, this thing really triggers me. Isn't that interesting? It's not personal. It doesn't mean anything. It's just that we have a mind and, and our mind is not just going to sit back. Like it just, it's all about storytelling and we are at the center of all of those stories. So I'm sure everyone's noticed, like you are the center of the universe, according to your own mind, which is what you hear all day, every day, right? Like the whole world revolves around each one of us in our own heads. That's just the way it works. So everything that people do, I mean, shoot, like the weather, like everything, it's like all got something to do with us. And that's just because we have a mind that narrates everything with us at the center of that story. So when you're talking about things like your GI issues that really kind of get to you, there's so much old thinking you have about what it means. And I'm making this up, obviously, but like how it might limit you or what how it should be or whatever. And it doesn't have to be all consciously in your head in any moment. It's like your mind just holds on to it and you're in the middle of that story. And so when something comes in that doesn't kind of fit well with that story, it's like this giant punch in the gut to your mind. <laughs> and it, you know, and then we get all up in arms about it. And other things just flow right through. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. Okay, so I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near-infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near-infrared for so long. And at the same time, during the day, I was using a bright, sad light 
So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time, that's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an near infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code melanieavalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. So does it require a sort of inciting incident for something to become distressing? I'm guessing like, does it require at some point that we attached a story to it that 
this is a bad thing or this means this? Or is that why like with chronic health issues, when you receive like the diagnosis from a doctor, like you have this thing, you have this thing, maybe people get so stuck in this rut because they've attached a label to it. Is it the language part of the brain that is making these issues issues? Yes. All of our issues are due to that, (laughs) are due to the words and the verbal part of our brain that just wants to tell stories about things. Absolutely. So if we had no language. (laughs) Yeah, no, totally. And I tell my clients that all the time. I'm like, when, you know, somebody's mind is just racing and all this stuff, I'm like, you know, if all that stuff in your head, your head could be doing the exact same thing it's doing. But if it was saying all that in Mandarin, or I like to channel Charlie Brown's teacher. So if everything in your head was like, wah, 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 you wouldn't be offended by it. You wouldn't be affected by it. It'd just be like, whoa, that's a lot of noise in there. And that's kind of what I'm talking about with kids. That's why I love looking back to children as an example of this is they don't have, I mean, even just brain-wise, they don't have that part of the brain as, as well-formulated, but definitely they haven't learned yet to make meaning of everything. Their mind just doesn't go there. So they still feel all kinds of stuff. They'll have their temper tantrum on the floor of Target and they're not embarrassed. They just get up and move on with their life, you know? But we, with all the words and the labels and judgments, we tell stories and that's exactly why that stuff kind of sticks with us. It's so incredible. So incredible. And you can correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that in th- in theory, everything our brain does has a protective mechanism. Like, like I feel like our thoughts happen and we do the things we do in an attempt to make ourselves better or protect ourselves or, you know, learn from something so that something negative doesn't happen again. If that's the case, what is the, like from an evolutionary perspective, the benefit of these these ruminations or these patterns that we get into that seem to not be serving us that we can't seem to break free from? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's it's one a lot of people ask, especially around rumination and anxiety and worry, like what the heck, you know, if this doesn't have any real purpose for me right now, like why is it happening? And I think it's just, I think you're right that on some level, there is a, obviously there's definitely a purpose to all of that. But if we want to look at it really big, it's like the mind's kind of, and definitely the brain's kind of ultimate purpose is just keep us alive. So it's designed being very attracted to habits because it has habits like beating our heart and breathing our lungs that it needs to have in order to do its ultimate job, which is to keep us alive. So just on a brain level, you know, people talk about the lower brain and how it's all about survival. I mean, it has to be efficient. It has to work for us for hopefully up to 100 years. And so it doesn't have all the energy. I mean, it has energy, but, you know, it's like needs to be efficient and keep us alive. And so it just wants to turn things into habits. And so our mind in a similar way, like, and again, just hold this loosely. I'm not like a brain scientist and I don't want to get it. Like, I don't think it's that that important to like distinguish mind from brain and any kind of definitions, but everybody kind of knows, you know, there's a brain that's an organ. There's a mind that talks to us all the time. So the mind's kind of purpose, I think, as far as I can see, is to secure some sense of identity, like to, again, kind of to keep us alive basically, but it's not really keeping us alive so much as it's like telling these stories. It thinks it's keeping us alive and it's, and it's got us in the center of the story. So there's an Amy, there's a Melanie, 
these characters are real and there's all kinds of features of them and the mind has to kind of relate everything to these characters of Amy and Melanie and and make sure they're happy and they get what they want so that they can feel good in life and all of that stuff and it's so complicated. So in a big picture way, like our mind just tells stories and puts everything, you know, again, on some kind of timeline and tries to find some logic and things. And I think what happens is we we get really caught up in that. Again, when we don't understand that that's just what a mind does, we believe it, obviously. It's in our own head. It's talking about us. So we get very tied up in that as if it's reality, as if our mind, our narrator is, is actually telling us about life. And then certain things, you know, again, when it feels like it threatens our survival in some way or threatens our happiness, we just pay a lot of attention to that. Like, oh no, what if I do get sick? What if I can't work? What if this happens? Or what if that happens? And just again, because the brain is all about habits and paying attention and fight or flight, like when we start to get really worried about something and we give it a ton of attention, duh, it just comes back a lot more. <laughs> it just does. And then what happens? Because we misunderstand it, we're like, oh, it keeps coming back. Look, this has been here forever. This thought just won't leave me alone. And we kind of think it's even more valid for that reason. So does that make sense? Like it's a, it's a very, like it's hard to wrap your head around this, but just kind of see the job of kind of the brain and the mind or just to be in service of, of our survival. And for the mind, it's really in service of what we think we need in order to survive and be happy and all of that kind of stuff as human beings. And so in that way, it'll just grab onto things, especially things that do scare us or that we've paid a lot of attention to. And it just runs away with those, which is not inherently a problem if we understand how it works. But because we tend to not understand how it works because no one told us, we get really caught up in it. I'm so glad that you tied it into the habit concept, which obviously is inevitable given your perspective of this that you were relating. Because one thing that you were talking about in the book was the difference between, quote, behavior habits and then, quote, thought habits. And I think people often, like behavior, behavior habits seem obvious, like, oh, I have this bad habit I want to break. You know, it's this thing I'm doing. It's a habit. But then the thought habits you were talking about being, those are like, you know, like the mental chatter and things like that, that we have more like we were talking about in the beginning with like anxiety and ruminations and things like that. So are those actually all in the same category? Are they all habits? If so, do they also have the same root of the brain just trying to take care of Amy, take care of Melanie? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't really see at the level we're used to looking at them, we could call them all different. And that's what most people do, right? And the kind of an old school way of looking at things like, oh, rumination is different than bulimia, then it's different than worry, you know? But but what we're looking at when we call them all different names is is we're just looking at the really superficial part of it, of like how it shows up in the world and who cares? Because how it shows up in the world is like, so you either ate or you didn't eat or you sat and worried. Well, that just comes and goes. It's just the, the momentary expression of it. Again, it doesn't feel like that because we're used to looking at that as the thing that matters and giving it all kinds of meaning. But if it doesn't inherently have that meaning, if it's like, oh, I did this, I thought that, I felt this, and it doesn't mean anything about us, and it's always in motion, it's always moving, it's always changing, then how it shows up in the world just isn't all that important in the big picture. But what's going on 
beneath the surface, like behind the scenes, like you said, they're all exactly the same. Because whether you hoard or shop or binge eat or worry or feel depressed or any of that, what's going on is your mind is telling you some stuff and you're kind of caught up in it. You're identified with it. You think it's about you. Like that's that's the basis of all of this is we misunderstand and get misidentified with our experience. So, okay, that's really exciting actually, because especially for listeners. So basically, I mean, almost any quote issue, and I I almost don't even want to give labels to anything now, but um, any, you know, anything you may be experiencing that doesn't seem to be benefiting you as far as these, these thought patterns go, having this, you know, new perspective, there's so much potential for changing how you engage with that, which is so amazing. And so one of the reasons I'm so obsessed with your book. Okay. So making things a little bit more practical or more like, what does this actually look like? So going to quote habits, what do they look like in our brain? So like when we experience a habit, how does that actually happen in our brain? How are we experiencing that? And how can we take note of how we're experiencing that so we can ultimately engage with it differently? Yeah. Let's start off like really huge and kind of see that all experience. So when I say experience, like let's just say it's thought, feeling, behavior. It's anything, I mean, it's experience. (laughs) It's anything that we, it's like our psychological experience, right? It's like we smell something, that's an experience. It's just kind of what's coming to life for us in any given moment. If we look at that and say, Okay, all day, every day, our entire lives from the minute we're born to the minute we die, we have this constant flow of brand new experience. Now, it doesn't seem like it's brand new. I know when we're stuck in, when we feel like we're stuck in something, but even in a five minute panic attack or a 10 minute binge or something, like your, you know, experience is changing. There's new thoughts, new feelings, like there's everything's always in motion, always fluid. So I think it's really helpful to kind of just look really huge and just kind of almost stop there and say, hey, all of our experience works in the same way. Just like you're saying, oh, wait a minute, I don't think it's a, it makes sense to, to call out a behavioral habit versus a thought habit versus a feeling habit. You're right, it really doesn't. And it also doesn't really make sense on some level to call out a habit versus something else that we experience. If we look at it, I hope this makes sense. Like if we look at it just moment to moment to moment in life, we are just feeling stuff. The thing, like we said about your IBS and my former bulimia, like if the thing that makes that a thing for us is this giant label and all this thinking we have attached to it. It's not the experience that's moving through us. It's not the sensations and the feelings and all like that just moves through us. That's what it wants to do anyway. And that's what it does. But it's when we come in and give it meaning and think it means something and think it's about us and then we're trying to change it that we experience it as recurring and haunting us and being a flaw and all of that. So I'll stop there and we can kind of see, but like I just, it's kind of mind blowing sometimes because it's so big and it's so kind of different from what we're used to looking at. But What if an urge and a craving and a thought and a memory and a laugh and a little bit of annoyance and all of that are basically the exact same thing? They don't mean anything about us. It's all experience moving through us. Yeah, it's it's so big and so mind-blowing, yet so simple at the same time. 
Yeah. It's so common sense, but it's like it's our mind wants to grab it. And it's like, no, it's not. This is a problem, you know, but no, it is. It's like the answer can't be that easy. And then and then the mind goes all off. It's like, it's got to be this. It's got to be. Ah, it does exactly what we're, yeah, exactly what we're um, discussing. It's so simple. I mean, I love that you just said, like, I think that's just such a huge thing to to look at. Like it's, life is so, how we work even, it's so incredibly simple. But our minds don't like that. Our minds are just, we're super smart. We're, they have all these concepts and ideas. And they, that's just what they do is they kind of complicate things. And again, that's not a problem. It's kind of cool and fun sometimes, if, especially if we know that that's what your mind is going to do. So I love just that. When if you're, if you're listening and you're like, can't be that simple, you know, or like, no way, or I would have seen this before because I hear that stuff every single day on my work. Just consider, like, just consider, oh, maybe that's just what a mind says, but what if it is this simple? Yeah, it's like maybe, maybe it is that simple because our mind so naturally overcomplicates everything that that's why we never found the simple answer <laughs> because it, it would never rise to the surface. I, okay, I talk about this study all the time now because every time I, ever, ever since I read it, it just, no pun intended, blew my mind. Are you familiar with the studies they've done in like, left versus right brain and like seeing certain objects where only the left brain sees an object or only the right brain sees an object. A little, not, not very familiar. Yeah. So, I mean, they've done a lot of studies on ever since, I think it started when they were doing studies on like split brain patients. They wanted to see how splitting the hemispheres of the brain actually affected various behaviors in people. But I won't go into like all the crazy details of the study, but I'll put a link to like some articles in the show notes for listeners. But basically the idea was that when they set people up so that only, cause like the language part of our brain is like our left brain. And then the right brain is more of the, um, like the motor control and things like that. When they set it up so that only part of their brain could see certain objects and only the other, other part of their brain could see certain objects. And then they would ask participants they would ask them like why they had done certain things with objects that the left brain, so the language part of the brain had never seen. So it had no, it didn't know the answer to the question because it hadn't like, it didn't have any, it didn't have any experience to explain why it had done things. The participants would actually just make up stories that they remembered. <laughs> like the, the brain, the language part of the brain would, would make up would make up memories to explain why things had happened, even though it literally had no idea. <laughs> like, and when, ever since I learned that, I was like, wow. So, because I'm always wondering if, oh, maybe I'm incorrectly interpreting things or maybe I'm making the wrong judgments. But then once I realized, oh, maybe my brain could literally just be making up things, that was such a paradigm shift for me. I think that is gigantic. Like, that, that is essentially the essence of everything I'm talking about. It's like if we can see that we have this narrator in our head, our mind or brain, whatever we want to call it. And it does exactly what you just said. It's just constantly making shit up. <laughs> like it's, and it's just trying to tell us stories that, that go together and that make sense. And that in its, in its way, you know, that kind of can predict the future and keep us safe and all this stuff. But if we even just have a little bit of suspicion, of like, wow, I don't think what my mind tells me is exactly what's going on. I've seen just a little bit of suspicion completely change people's lives. 
Because, you know, then what? Something happens, you tell yourself, oh, I'm such an idiot, I can't believe I did that, or this is never going to work out, or whatever. And if you know that nothing your mind tells you is the truth, now you don't have to see the truth, but you can just kind of know, like, how can how can anything our mind tells us be the truth? Like, there's almost 8 billion people on Earth and we're all having radically different experiences, often of the exact same circumstance, like at the same time. There's no way it's the truth. And that is the function of the mind, like you said, that it, it just will give a reason. It wants to give a cause and effect, and it wants to tell a story. I just think, I mean, it's completely life-changing to see that because little by little, it just loosens your grip on the concepts and the stories. And then you get to wake up and feel something in your stomach or whatever, and your mind doesn't automatically fill in all the blanks and tell you how bad your IBS is or something. You know, like you have a, it literally just leads to a radically different experience of anything in life. Yeah, it's such, it's such a paradigm shift. Yeah, I think the two things I reference the most now is probably A, your book, and then B, that, that study that I read. Specifically, it was like pictures of like chickens and eggs and shovels and snowstorms and, the language part of the brain would just make up, make up memories about like the person. Yeah. It's so great. It makes you want to question like literally everything. And it makes you want to just experience the world completely afresh with, (laughs) with no history. So I have so many questions. (laughs) Um, So one question I do have though is, so we can, we can say all of this, we can have this understanding. Okay. Maybe my interpretation of an event, maybe it's, not the way it is. Maybe I can just experience things without all of this drama or meaning, you know, so you, we can have this idea, but still can we, cause a lot, of, a lot of people will say that we can have this idea in our heads. We can have like an understanding in our quote prefrontal cortex, but that it won't, if we, if in our cells, like if deeper in our brain, if we have these, a different idea or a different view or like a fear or a stress or a trauma or an anxiety can we really quote, I don't want to say talk ourselves out of it, but can we have a paradigm shift in our thinking part of our brain and address something that might be deeper within within us? Because some people will say that it requires some some deeper sort of modalities like limbic system retraining, or you know, people will say various somatic therapies or, you know, body mind, EMDR, you know, like that no, you actually have to go deeper, that it's you can't have just like a, a top level understanding paradigm shift. Well, the thing is, like, I don't know, but I don't see, I see this as like bottom level. I think all that EMDR and somatic stuff, like, that's all more upstream than, than what this is. So, in the very, and I'm not trying to like just compete to say like this is as deep as it gets, because I'm sure there's more that I, you know, that we can discover, but it's kind of like like ultimately what we're talking about and what i what i've seen with people is like when we come to see that we are not our experience period we are not our somatic experience our thought experience our feelings we are not those fears that come up from out of nowhere we are not our fight or flight response like all of that is part of the form of a human being it's all part of the kind of design of a human and the form part of us anyway, and the physical part and in our psychology. But we are so much bigger than that. We're essentially the kind of essence, the the consciousness, if you want to use that word, within which all that stuff appears. 
When we come to see ourselves as something so much bigger than anything we experience, there's this space that opens up where we can experience anything without much to do. Like it's like, okay, here's what's showing up. Again, remember we talked about like if if everything's neutral, it's neutral. It just moves through us. It's not such a big deal. And that's not the goal. I'm not saying we want to be neutral in life and that's not at all what happens. But but it's like if we if we feel safe in our experience, if we don't fear and tell stories and make up things about anything we experience, like a flashback, a memory, a physical symptom, any of it, if we know it's all moving, changing experience, and we, the real us, is like kind of the way I would say it is like this consciousness within which all this stuff arises and falls, then what is there to fix? You know, we don't need to dig in and dissect things and see where it came from necessarily. And I have not done a lot. I did a lot of that in the past and I don't really do much of it anymore. And I've seen many people have this paradigm shift in this big picture way. And suddenly their desire, their their need that they feel for therapies and doing a lot of that stuff just completely falls away. Now, that doesn't mean it's not helpful for a specific person in a specific moment. So if you're listening to this and you love your EMDR and you feel like it's helping you, please don't hear this as me saying, stop doing that, or that you don't need to. Like, you don't need to. None of us need to do that because we are made of health, but we all do the best we can see to do in the moment. So for sure, whatever's one working for you, do it. But deeper than that is this bigger understanding. Yeah, I I love that so much. So something that I found very practical and implementable because so we, we've discussed this whole paradigm shift, which is just so, so huge yet so simple, but then applying it even more practically to one's life. And you mentioned this a little bit prior things you were saying, but urges and their relationship to habits and how understanding our urges is key to understanding how we can break a habit. So what is an urge that we have for a habit? And what does that look like? Like when, when we, you know, the word besides experience, but when it happens, when, it, when an urge happens, how can we start to see what that looks like so that we can start, we can engage with it differently? Yeah. So in the big picture, again, an urge is no different than anything else we might experience fundamentally. So it's not, it's made of the same energy that moves through us all the time. So that, I just think that's really important to call out. That might sound very vague. I get it. And especially if you're not used to this kind of conversation, that might sound extremely vague. But, you know, it's not this, because I used to feel like it was this monster chasing me and it had all this power and it, and it meant all this bad stuff about me. And I just... Like it, it's, it's no different fundamentally than feeling joy or excitement or anything else. It's just energy moving through us that our mind talks about and tells stories about. So in the case of an urge, our mind says, oh no, here it is again. This is uncomfortable. You better do your habit to make this go away. And that is what hurts us. Those stories, not the sensation, not the energy not what we'd really call the urge, I guess, in its essential form, but the thinking about it and the idea and the misunderstanding that it's special and different. So that's kind of one way of talking about it, very, very like high level, that none of our experience is special or different in that sense. You know, it's just that our mind has all kinds of condition thinking about it. And I think also though, like it's another way to kind of talk about this, which is just from a different sort of angle. It's like when we feel an urge, 
it could be just like it, like that's a perfect part of our, of our design as well. When we feel something that's so jarring and uncomfortable and demanding our attention in a sense, that doesn't mean, now what I used to think it meant and all my clients thinks it, think it means is that, oh, there's a real problem here. I'm being woken up in the most uncomfortable, jarring, horrible way. There's a real problem here and I better solve it. But it doesn't actually mean that at all. It's showing us where we're really caught up in our heads. It's basically an alarm system that's showing us, whoa, you know, the mind has taken over big time. You, you in the character of you, in the center of your story, and oh no, and this has to happen, or this isn't going to happen, and all that stuff, like we are totally misidentified with our thinking in that moment. And feeling is how we kind of wake up to that. That's just how the design, it's a beautiful design. We start to feel uncomfortable and then we think, oh no, this feeling's bad. And then we need to reach for something to make that feeling go away. But what if that feeling, what if all of it is just, it's just that kind, loving alarm system that's kind of saying, hey, you're really up in your head right now. This isn't your natural state. Yeah, that was one of the things that really, really stuck with me when you're talking about urges in your book was this concept that when we engage with the urge, especially an urge that seems to be connected to doing some sort of quote habit that we're trying to break, that it's about, we we want to do the habit to make the urge go away (laughs) rather than to actually engage with the habit and that was like such a such a different perspective to me. So it's like, oh, if I have this urge to eat this food, maybe we don't so much want the food as we just want to not have the urge to eat the food. And like you were saying, we're so not used to this, you know, this jarring energy in our head demanding something. So we're tr- we try to quiet it or we try to make it stop. It's interesting because on the intermittent fasting podcast, I've been recommending your book a lot. And I think one reason people can actually really benefit from intermittent fasting is because it's one way to actually start to hear that that voice or that urge. Because if you're, and I'm not trying to make this, not trying to make this about intermittent fasting, but just as far as like the paradigm shift goes, because if you, you know, commit to a certain time that you're not going to eat, you start to experience that urge and you realize that you don't have to engage with it. And then you can start hearing it for other things. So ever since I read your book, I started really realizing this voice in my head and like this urge to do things, some being tied to habits that I wanted to break. But then I realized I also had some habits that weren't really like bad and they weren't even like hurting anybody. So things things like, like picking at my nails, for example. So it's not hurting anybody. And I'm like, oh, I I don't have to if I, you know, I could stop that if I wanted. So I tried an experiment recently where I was like, I'm going to apply this, you know, this work that I've been doing with how I view urges in my head. And I'm going to apply it to, you know, this meaningless habit that is not a big deal, like, you know, picking at my nails. And I realized that that voice that was like, pick at your nail now, it started getting more intense and more dire. And I was like, this is weird. Cause the other thing that I really struggle with is like, I'll get really intense. Sorry, I'm making this really personal, but just so I can show how this may look like practically for people. I often struggle with cravings for one food specifically, which is cashews. (laughs) Maybe it's the story in my head that makes me not digest it well, which that is quite a possibility. But for me right now, they always seem to create digestive issues. So that's something that I 
like to address and like I experience the urge to eat it and I can like apply it to that. So I tried applying that mental technique to this picking up my nail situation. And I was so surprised because the urge to do it got more intense and more intense. And I was like, this is so weird. And I started realizing that it was in a way the same voice in my head that would tell me to like eat some cashews or like the same voice that would tell me to do other things. And I was like, wow, it was just such a paradigm shift to realize that these intense desires for things or these habits that they really do possibly come from the same simple root urge or concept or energy in our body. And that we don't have to have all this meaning attached to it and we don't have to engage with it. Sorry, that was such a long story, but I was just so shocked to have the exact same reaction in my head to something I thought like wasn't a big deal. Yeah. Well, it is all the same though. I mean, it's so cool. You're totally right. It's There's one narrator in there. It's never about the nails or the cashews or anything. It's never about the habit. It's never about anything out there. It's one narrator that's constantly talking and then pulling in what our senses bring in, what we're seeing and smelling and what's around us and whatever, like pulling in old thoughts, old memories, and just telling a story about it. And so so when we do experience these urges in the moment to engage with these habits, does it require willpower (laughs) to not engage with them? Because I think that's what a lot of people might be thinking right now. They're like, okay, so so this urge is not me and that that's great. I cannot have identity attached to it. That's great. I cannot have drama. So I'm just going to have to use willpower to not engage. Why might that not be the best approach? Well, if we really if we really see and and even by really see, I mean even just like a fraction of a percent. If we really start to get a feel for for the fact that we all just have a narrator in our head that talks about stuff and that it's not demanding what like it does it's not about what it's demanding the stories are not as they appear like we have everything we need when our mind is quiet no one has has a craving or an urge for anything we need nothing nothing at all when our mind is quiet we are completely at peace at ease and there is nothing needed or wanted When we really start to see things at that level, you just start to see, oh, so every time it looks like I need something or want something or a little habitual thoughts coming up, it's just our psychology. That does it. Like that, that's, I mean, and it's, it's huge. Again, this is another one that's like, that can sound so simple that people will not hear that at all, but, but eventually they will. <laughs> like you just, it, that is gigantic. When we really start to see that for what it is, it wouldn't even make sense to use willpower to overcome something or fight something or talk ourselves out of something because it's all made up to begin with. It's like talking yourself out of being afraid of the shadow on the wall that looks like a monster. When you're three, you might need to do that. When you're 33, hopefully you know what a shadow is and and you're not going to sit there and talk yourself out of, oh, it's not going to get you. It's over there in the corner. Like You know what it is. So, that's what we're going for here. Like, and it's huge. In the big picture, it changes every aspect of your life. It's like seeing that what our mind talks about is not the way it is. So like in your cashew example, this is really kind of big, but like, do you even like them? 
you might think you do. <laughs> you have the experience of liking them perhaps, but just just to kind of consider this. Like what if this whole thing of like, ooh, cashews, they sound good. Oh, can't have them. Like like you're kind of onto, like you said, right? Like that's all just this big story. There's nothing about the stupid nuts that have any power over you that you even love or don't love or anything. They're just they're just matter. There's nothing to them. But our our psychology is so big and and we're in the middle of it and with so much, you know, it's all brought to life in such a way that we get so wrapped up in it. I'm like just sitting here thinking, I'm like, but I love cashews. And then I'm like, but do I? Like, oh my goodness, if you could you could hear the dialogue in my in my in my voice right now. See, sorry, let me just say, because this is huge. I love this topic too, of like preferences and stuff too. Like you have the experience of loving them. But I think even bigger than that is is why? Like, where is that experience coming from? So I had the experience of loving all my old binge foods and, you know, even though they made me sick two seconds later, like, like, but what is that about? I mean, I think in large part, no, I'm not, again, don't, like, I'm not saying you, you hate cashews or that you're neutral about cashews, right? I'm sure you enjoy them to some extent, but it is really fascinating to see how our mind tells us what we like. And what we don't like, I mean, my son who's seven, like he'd convinced himself that he hates cinnamon rolls and he had never had a cinnamon roll in his life. He had never eaten one. And he's like, but he's super picky eater. Like he, he, he just tells us what he likes and doesn't like before he's tried any of it. So he's like, no, I don't like those. I don't like them. We're like, are you sure? I don't think you've had one before. He took like a little quarter of a cinnamon roll taste and you could see his body just like melt. He's like, oh my God. You know, but then he's like, I don't really like it. Like he's trying so hard to keep his idea of it. But you know, like our mind tells us what we like and don't like. And when you have all this thinking about about anything, you know, it's like we do experience that, but it's it's more conditioning than it, like I, I don't again, just play with this for yourselves and kind of see, you know, it's 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 more conditioning, I suspect, than any kind of true preference or true liking. Well, it's really interesting. I was actually thinking about this sort of last night. I was looking, I was at a restaurant and they had a dessert tray with like seven different options. And in my head, I was like, well, obviously everybody thinks would want the red velvet cake because that's just obviously the best. And then like one person picked like a cannoli. And in my head, I was like, who likes cannoli? Like that's not even. And then then I started thinking about, wait, and then I started thinking about like what you're talking about. Like what is, you know, what is a preference? What is a like, what does determine that? So yeah, that's, man, when you start thinking about things, you really do realize what we're saying, like the stories about everything. And preferences are like tied, especially food preferences and stuff. They're so tied to old memories. And, you know, that's why like, especially now around the holidays, people eat stuff they would never normally eat because it's tradition or because like grandma fed you fruitcake and now you eat it and, you know, you think you like it or whatever. What you're liking is the thoughts that come up. That's all because that's what we feel is thought. So what you're liking is the thought much more so, I think, than the food. Hi, friends. An incredible fasting aid is coffee. Yes, I am all about the coffee. I am a huge fan of its health benefits as well as how it can support your fast and really help with energy and fat burning. And I have a big announcement. The brand of coffee that I have been drinking for an entire decade now, I am no longer drinking. 
there's some drama, there's some science, and I'm about to tell you how to get a discount on my new favorite coffee. So I've been drinking the coffee formerly known as Dave Asprey's Bulletproof Coffee for literally a decade. I do not drink it now, so this is not a Bulletproof Coffee commercial, but I started drinking it because I so trusted Dave and his obsession in creating mold-free coffee because moldy coffee beans is a huge problem and a lot of people can get health issues, brain fog, and crash after coffee because of the mold contamination. Dave has been talking about this for so long, so I really trusted him and I would drink Bulletproof Coffee, which I absolutely loved and loved that it was mold-free. Then there was some drama. Dave sort of got kicked out of Bulletproof. He might be going back. There's a lot of stuff going on with that. Follow him on Instagram if you want to learn more about that. He even talked about it at the recent biohacking conference. But in any case, (laughs) drama aside, he can no longer speak to Bulletproof Coffee as to whether or not it is mold-free. And he ended up making a coffee even better than Bulletproof Coffee. And it is called Danger Coffee. And friends, I love it. It's the first coffee that is not only mold-free, but actually can help you remineralize. Yep, that's right. Danger Coffee contains a patent-pending formula that actually remineralizes your body with more than 50 trace minerals, nutrients, and electrolytes. On top of that, it is super clean. I know people like to see organic labels. Friends, I have learned so much about the certification industry. And honestly, the best of the best is finding people that you trust who do extensive testing and third-party certification. That's what I do with my Avalon X supplements. And that's what Dave does with Danger Coffee. So with Danger Coffee, they use a process that far exceeds government and industry standards. And it is third-party lab tested. So you can rest assured it is free of mold toxins. As for the flavor, Dave selected these hand-picked farm direct beans for their quality, their superb flavor, and their elevated performance. I love the taste of it. It's much richer and more nuanced than Bulletproof Coffee. It's honestly one of the best coffees I've ever tasted, and it's so exciting to know that when I'm drinking it, I'm actually helping to remineralize my body. So that's right. If you want your coffee to contain antioxidants, anti-inflammatories, micronutrients, and help optimize your fasting, you want Danger Coffee. And of course, I have a discount for you guys. You can go to melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee and use the coupon code melanieavalon to get 10% off. Again, that is melanieavalon.com slash danger coffee with the coupon code melanieavalon for 10% off. This is my favorite coffee. Like I said, it takes some really good coffee and convincing biohacking health reasons to break me from my 10 year decade bulletproof coffee habit but sometimes you just got to upgrade. And by the way, this would make epic presents for people. This can just become your go-to present. Not only will people love it, but you'll be helping their health as well. Everybody wins. MelanieAvalon.com slash Danger Coffee with the coupon code Danger Coffee. Hi friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, 
and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order. So you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to melanieavalonscloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. So you're liking, are you liking how it makes you feel? No, you're liking the story your mind's creating around it. I guess, I mean, I guess we see that so obviously in, well, you know, studies on rodents or people as well, like who have habits and you start experience, you know, the dopamine release before, before even engaging in the behavior. It's just the idea of it. 
that creates that response that um, seems so pleasurable. So I just, I'm trying to make this like really practical for listeners. I'm actually going to air this purposely the closest date to the new year. So (laughs) start the new year with um, this new perspective. So let's say that somebody has a habit like I'm not going to do the cashews because that seems very specific to me. But um, let's say somebody is trying to break a habit like snacking on candy for their health. So that like that's why they want to change that. So when they experience the urge to have the candy, so like in that moment, so they just try to realize, okay, this is an experience. I don't have to engage. I don't have to have the candy. Like like what like practically, what should they do at that moment? Yeah. So it, I mean, I'll, I'll tell you ideally what they might see in that moment. But the thing kind of about this too, is it's a, it's a much bigger exploration than, than a strategy for in the moment. So all the time, I mean, of course people say, well, what do I do in the moment when I want the candy? It's not a, it's not a strategy. So, so there's nothing I can say, like do this in the moment and that's going to help. But what tends to happen, and again, this is so hard for us to get our heads around, is like I enter into these conversations every day with people who are trying to break habits, and we're not even talking about what to do when the candy hits quite yet. We're talking about the kind of stuff we've been talking about so far, right? Like who we are and how our experience works. And as people kind of come to see more and more deeply, like, oh, my mind is just a machine. Like it works like a machine. It just goes on repeat. That's why that's all around these habits, right? And it and it's very conditioned and it tells me stories and it says, I love candy and I always have candy at four o'clock and all this stuff and I deserve the candy and what's not so harmful and all that stuff. Like people come to see all that stuff in their head that we can turn into Charlie Brown's teacher voice and it would mean nothing, but because of the words and the labels and all that, like it feels meaning that they come to see that as like, oh, that there's my mind going on the candy thing again. So automatically, like before we get to even what do you do in this moment, like just by kind of exploring some of this, like things just look different. And often it's things you can't predict, like like all the time, you know, the candy thing still looks like a thing, but then maybe like their relationship is totally different or other things fall away because again, it all, it, this all applies to everything. So already it's like the battle with the candy they're seeing in this example, like they're seeing, okay, it's nothing I have to fight. It's not, you know, and it's just my mind on repeat. How do I know? I might not even like the candy as much as I think I do. So that kind of helps a ton. It goes a really, really long way, sometimes all the way. And then, you know, in a moment, what can you do? Well, we can only do whatever we can see to do in that moment. But often how things start showing up for us in that moment is kind of some of the stuff you said, right? Like, oh, look at that. Isn't that interesting? It's not like, I need candy now so much as, oh, look at my mind starting to talk about the candy. Oh, kind of like, just like you said with the intermittent fasting, like how your mind's like, oh, yep, I decided I wasn't going to eat until one o'clock. Here it is 11. Look at, there goes my mind telling me I need food right now. But you see that for what it is more and more. So there's space for that. So you can feel it and it doesn't feel as gripping and it doesn't really occur to you to fight it because it's like, oh, I see this. It comes, it goes. It's not me. So it's very much kind of what you described. And I had that experience myself starting intermittent fasting over the summer where I was like, wow, this is amazing for what I'm, for what I teach. (laughs) Is that, like you said, exactly. It's like we just get that experience of feeling stuff come up sometimes louder than ever. 
but you come to know more and more of what it is. And it, it just requires less of an attack in the moment because you see it and you experience it differently. Yeah. It's such, such a paradigm shift. And like one thing you talked about in the book was that while we are experiencing them, like these urges that eventually they will go away, which is also very freeing because I think it can feel like if you don't engage in the habit that makes the urge seemingly go away, that it will never go away. But you were saying, no, you know, eventually it will go away. And do you think there's like a benefit to, cause I know so, so, so something that I've heard before people will do is like, they'll like actually time it <laughs> to like show that after a certain amount of time has passed that, that it changed. I don't know if you see any, any benefit to that at all. Well, I think it's individual. You know, I think, I I think what you're saying is so beneficial to see in the big picture. Like we've never, ever, no one on earth has ever been stuck in a feeling forever, ever. Like it's never, there's no documented cases of that (laughs) amongst human beings ever. Like our feelings and thoughts try to change. And I often tell people like, if you, if I offered you $10 million dollars, to hold on to a thought or feeling for, I don't know, a half hour, you couldn't do it. Your mind wanders, feelings change. Like it's just the way they work. They're like weather, right? Like weather changes. We don't get to hold it in place. And we miss that. We miss that when it comes to our feelings because we're so afraid of this feeling. We're staring at it and we're like, see, I'm staring at it. It's not changing, but it's not changing because we're staring at it. So happy you brought up the weather. That was actually... One of the things that really, really resonated with me was when you said that like our, our true nature, our self is like the sky and that it's not affected by the weather, that the weather changes, but the weather doesn't actually touch the sky. <laughs> so like the weather would be the experience and, and it is ever changing, but behind all of that is the sky, which even when, even like when there's a thunderstorm during the day, actually the sky is still blue and clear behind the thunderstorm. And that was just so beautiful to me and really resonated with me because it made me, you know, realize, okay, like anything that I'm experiencing at any point, you know, that's, that's not me. That's just my experience because it's happening now. Like you said, it can't stay like that forever. I mean, I don't know. I don't like using the word can't, but it can't. It can't. It's a like it's a you know, it's a force of nature. I mean, nature doesn't just sit still. It just doesn't. And we're nature too. So here's the cool thing about this weather metaphor. This is like like it's a nice metaphor. I mean, it's a great metaphor and it really it's helped so many people because it's just so concrete. We have we know it, whatever. Like we know the weather changes. But really kind of like take it an extra step and and consider like it is so much more accurate than it even seems. I mean, we as human beings are part of nature. Just like a tree grows from a seed, we grow from a seed, we grow up, we're constant our form is constantly changing and deteriorating from the minute we're born, really, just our form, right? This essence that grows us and lives us is always there. It's never touched. That's like the blue sky beyond the weather. Like we as human beings are nature. So it's mind blowing to, I know we've said, I've said mind blowing like 50 times in this conversation, but, but it is, (laughs) it's mind blowing to really look at that as literal, like beyond just 
a nice metaphor. I mean, literally, what if our thoughts and feelings and everything moving through us is exactly like weather moving through the sky? What if there is some God or some bigger intelligence looking down saying, look at these silly humans. Like they're fighting their weather. They're doing all their rain dances. They're, they have all their superstitions and they're telling all these stories about what the weather means, like it's all about them and they need to fix it and it's wrong. And that's what we do. And that creates all of our suffering. So if we could really kind of see our experience, and I don't know that we ever really will because that's pretty huge, but really, really just even 1% more that our psychological experience is a lot closer to the weather than we even see that it is, (laughs) like how it operates. I think it's just amazing. It's so incredible and reminds me of another study I read where they had participants, like they put them in a, a room and they told them that if they, there was like some, I think some buttons or something. And they told them if they hit the buttons in a certain order that a light would come on. I don't know if you've heard this, this um, read, read this one before, but so the, the participants would go in and they would like, you know, hit certain buttons in certain orders. And sometimes the light would come on and sometimes it wouldn't. They said at the end, every single participant walked out of the room, like convinced they had come up with the exact pattern needed to turn on the lamp, the light. And like, like everyone was convinced. And I think they said like one of them thought that she had to like stand on a chair and like, you know, hit things in a certain order. But really there was like no pattern. Like... <laughs> There was no pattern to it. It was just completely random about if the light would turn on or off. But it just goes back to you know what you're saying that like I was thinking you're talking about like you know, we do the rain dance and we think if we do all the stuff that we can you know it's all this just this I guess desperate search to try to control like you said like said like you said the weather when really it's just an experience. It's not it's not something that needs to be controlled or needs to be changed or needs to be. I don't, I don't know. I'm just having a lot of epiphanies. Right. It can't make us happy or sad or it's, and it's not inherently good or bad anyway. So it's like, if you know this about the outside sky weather, like, yeah, sometimes it rains, sometimes it's sunny, sometimes it's hot, sometimes it's cold, but we've all managed. Now people like to complain about the weather and talk about it a lot, but for the most part, we've all managed to just live a life and say, yep, there's this stuff called weather that's totally uncontrollable and inconsistent, but you know, we just live with it and we go on with our lives. Like, what if we had a fraction of that for our own experience? Yeah, sometimes I wake up in a bad mood. Sometimes I'm in a good mood. Sometimes I feel this. Sometimes I feel that. And none of it's me. And none of it has to be good or bad or otherwise. It's like, it's just the variety of life. Yeah, like even continuing with the the weather analogy, like I adore, and Jen and I, my co-host on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast, we talk about this a lot, but like I adore freezing cold temperatures. Like I love it. Where do you live? Well, I guess it's not even freezing. Right now I'm in Atlanta. It's not freezing cold. Basically, I just, I like it when it's really cold. Whereas Jen loves like summer and heat and I I kind of dread heat. (laughs) So like, I guess anybody can have any reaction and that's literally the weather, having a reaction to it as enjoying it or not enjoying it. But okay, you, you use the word like good mood or bad mood. I think that, I don't know, because that ties in so much into the idea of language, because I think if we put a label of like, oh, I'm in a good mood or, oh, I'm in a bad mood, even that itself, the idea of being in a mood 
seems to put us into a, like a sustained state of experiencing an emotion that we have to keep experiencing, if that makes sense, compared to just adding an adjective, like I am happy or I am upset or I am this. Is that too much? Is that like storytelling? So rather we should say, well, I think we should, I think we're going to, you know, I mean, it's just what humans do, right? And there's a lot of, it's not a, it's not a bad thing, but what you're saying is also absolutely true. So once we get into the adjectives and the good and bad and all that, that's our mind doing that. Now, like to kind of just get along in the world and be able to relate to other humans, we kind of need to do that to some extent. But the beauty in it is that if we see something about that and we see that we don't need to trust our mind so much, we get to have those conversations and tell somebody, oh yeah, I had a tough afternoon or that was that was a boring meeting or whatever. And we kind of secretly know, oh yeah, my mind just gave that to it. Does that make sense? Like we get, we kind of get the both the best of both worlds because really we we live at both levels. I mean, the ultimate truth of it is is there are no labels, and we're just feeling energy moving through us. And it's also true as human beings that we experience things that our mind will always call good, bad moods, all that other stuff. Hi, friends. So if you're enjoying this conversation with Amy Johnson, and if the things we're discussing are really resonating with you. You definitely want to consider her online school. It's called the Little School of Big Change. It's her flagship course, and it's how Amy personally supports people these days. It's a much elaborated and an in-depth walkthrough of the understandings and concepts shared in the book. She leads it as a six-week course twice a year, and the next class begins March 2nd, and you can pre-enroll and save big on that enrollment. If you do it today, you will save a ton. Okay, here's why. Amy is doing something amazing for my listeners. If you use the code AVALON20, you'll get 20% off of that price. But wait, it gets even better. Through Friday, January 3rd, which is today, so you have to jump on this today if you want this special offer, she's actually reducing the base rate by 33%. So if you sign up today, yes, today, you'll get 33% off. Plus, if you use my coupon code AVALON20, you'll get an additional 20% off. So many savings. And after Friday, you can still pre-enroll and you can still use that code Avalon20 and get 20%. But if you want that additional 33%, definitely sign up now. And that six-week online course can truly be life-changing. And I love that it's online because you can really make it a part of your routine for six weeks, do it from your home, and truly cultivate a new perspective of experience. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Bring it still again back to the habit concept, but some people might feel like they're stuck in a rut of engaging in some sort of behavior pattern, be it an actual, I, I shouldn't use the word actual, but be it a, a behavior habit or a, a thought habit. Does it matter the length of time that they've been seemingly stuck in this rut as far as to how, quote, quickly they could stop engaging in that pattern. Cause I mean, some people, you know, might say, yeah, that's other people, but I've been struggling with this issue for five years. So I I can't just make change tomorrow. Like it's going to take longer. Does it have to take longer? No. So, I mean, I've seen people in habits for 40, 50 years and they have an insight and they see into this and things fall. I like, I have a woman on my podcast next week that had a 
a food-related habit for 40 plus years and it was literally gone in an instant. Now, I'm not saying that's the norm, but here's the thing. Like like that for sure that happens. It happens more often than we think it does. It's also not 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 the norm. <laughs> if that's the right way to say it. it's not as rare as we think it is. But so it doesn't have to take longer at all, but it but it often does because we think it will. Does that make sense? Like because of what you just said, like because we say, oh no, but I've had this one for this. All that is is more thinking. And we hold the expectation, oh yeah, this, no, I'm going to have to work at mine and mine's different. And so we prove ourselves right in a sense because we hold on to that thinking. Yeah. I think, I mean, I think a lot of people are going to have that exact response. You know, I'm different. It's different for me. There's a re. Again, it's that whole that whole voice. But I, I mean, I think this comes in a lot with, especially with it, like quote things that are labeled actually as addictions. They'll say, "No, you know, I'm I'm literally addicted." So there's that. Or if it's something like a um a rumination surrounding a chronic health issue, because then it's like, no, there's actual physical pain. But I guess, guys, <laughs> it can for anybody that it, it can be. Address one quote that you said in the book that I thought was so beautiful that you said that regardless of, you know, that habits could, you know, we can see them kind of like paths and it can seem like some are really, really intense as they really are well-worn into the ground. But you said there is enormous momentum waiting to bring you back, which I just thought was so beautiful that at any point there was this huge, enormous potential to return to a state being free of having to engage with that that habit, that behavior, that thought pattern. It's like everything in us wants to go back home. So that's totally what kind of wants to happen. And and you're right. I mean, there's just so much momentum in favor. It takes a lot of energy to be in a habit, even though on, on the psychological level, it feels like the shortcut and the quick way to not feel pain and all that kind of stuff. It's, it's so much harder to do something than it is to do nothing, right? Like it's, it takes a lot and there's so much momentum in favor of us just settling and being okay and not needing to add anything. And it does sometimes you know, like I was saying, we can expect that it'll take long and then we hold on to that and then we find that, we find evidence for that. And so that happens. And, but the, the other thing that happens a lot when I see people like starting to be free of a habit is they, they have an insight or a series of insights. So they really see, oh, like everything we're talking about, they come to really see it as true. And, and this is so fascinating and their mind and their body, like they're, their psychology and their the machine of their body still kind of goes with what it's used to. So for me, like a, this happened for me with binge eating. Like I, like I mentioned, I I had some glimpses into this understanding, and I knew, okay, I am free. I am free, and I will be free. And that's you know everything's a done deal as far as that's concerned. But that doesn't mean my mind instantly stopped going to the same places it used to go. And when it went there, I still felt a lot of the energy around that that I had felt before because that's just a body and mind that are in a habit. But the thing that was different is independent of my body and mind going there, I saw it differently. I saw, oh, yep, here's, you know, just like, again, with the fasting that we talked about, oh, yep, here's what time I usually start thinking about breakfast. I don't do that anymore, or I'm not doing that right now. And it just, you know, it's like just that space to feel the pull, the physical and psychological pull, but to not have to go with it. 
Yeah, I think that is something so huge to touch on this idea that I think our our current identity so often can get tied to the behaviors and the thought patterns we've been experiencing. And that so when we when we reach a point where we realize we don't have to be engaging or you know, they don't have to be a part of our life going forward, it's weird we can almost want to we can feel like we're we're losing something or that you know, we can, you know, they'll say that people prefer a current situation that might be unpleasant or not serving them just because it's what's comfortable or it's what they're used to. And I think people so often, you know, get, get stuck in that. It's, it's kind of interesting. Like I just had LASIK surgery done and I had so many epiphanies about all of this stuff with that process because so the, the day before I was like, you you can't wear contacts or glasses the day before. And I got it to see far away and I had this moment where I was looking at the world and everything was blurry because I, I hadn't had the surgery yet. And I was like, wow, I'm never going to see the world like this. You know, I'm never going to see the world blurry again. And you'd think that would be like a really great thing. But instead, I got hit with like this wave of sadness, like, oh, I can never again experience this. And I was like, wow, that is such such an epiphany that I'm sad about losing something that is, you know, there's something better, most likely on the other side, but I'm sad about losing my current experience or my current reality. And then the second epiphany I had regarding it was I got the actual surgery done and it was massively unpleasant while it was occurring, but you know, now it's done. And now I'm so grateful I can see, and I'm not, you know, I'm not traumatized by that, even though it was a quote, very traumatic experience. I'm not playing the story in my head every moment. I could be, I could be playing a story every moment in my head about, oh, I went, I had this terrible traumatic experience where they did all this stuff to my eye. You know, I could be, I could be thinking about it all the time, kind of like I think about some other things all the time, my IBS, but I, I I don't, and I haven't attached any story to it or meaning or, you know, like we're talking about the beginning, like my language hasn't made it a part of my current reality. And that made me realize, oh, if I can experience something I mean, it's not even, I don't even want to say objective because now it's like, what is objective? But something most people would would interpret as being a very unpleasant experience and I don't carry it with me. Why do I carry the emotional baggage of other experiences? So I know that's a lot of like words, which is ironic, but it just comes back to this idea of, you know, experiencing any, like that we can just experience anything in, in the moment and that that can be okay. Yeah. And it, and it pokes a lot of holes in, in this idea that we all kind of carry around that is, there's a certain logic to what we experience and it's for a good reason and it all makes sense. And, you know, even though I think if we just look a tiny bit, we see that that's not the case, but I love examples like that, you know, cause it's really like, wow, isn't that interesting? Less quote unquote, lesser things you might be, you know, ruminating about or having flashbacks about for months and something like that, you just brush it off. And we have thousands, millions of examples of that all the time, which, you know, again, it's just like, wow, how seriously am I going to take my own judgments when they're, when they're as fickle and like, you know, illogical as that? It is so crazy. And I think it's also a really great analogy because I, like I had an epiphany, (laughs) So an insight, it really, I love that word. That's a word that you use in the book a lot. And I really loved, would you like to tell listeners a little bit, because you talk about insights and and why it's different from, what did you compare it to? You're saying how an insight is different from just like knowing something. Yeah. From like learning a fact or something. It's, 
I think I think they're kind of the opposite. So I mean, I, don't, I forget the word I use now in the book, but like learning something or a new concept that we pick up or something like that, it's it's added, it's additive. It's like our intellect, you know, grabs something new and pulls it in in a sense. And an insight, I think, is like when our when our mind gets quiet, we see what's already there. So insights often have this this sense, and we've said it several times in this conversation of duh, I can't believe I didn't see that. Like now that I see it, I can't unsee it. (laughs) You know, like it's so obvious once you see it, they don't always have that feeling. But, you know, or if like we just get kind of clear and then stuff like comes to clarity as opposed to something we have to learn or work for or like add in. It reminds me, I think the end of The Wizard of Oz with Dorothy, realizing that the answer, you know, was in her own backyard all along. That idea just keeps coming home, like hitting home to me now, especially with this whole concept that, you know, we're searching for all of this answers and all this stuff when maybe the answer was just there all along. We just, you know, create this whole story, this whole Oz that we thought was real. Our mind just thought it can't be that simple. (laughs) So it creates this big dream. (laughs) So one other question or one other thing you talk about though is, so say somebody does reach this new, has this insight, reaches this new point of being free from these habits. Like, you know, specifically with you with now I'm, I'm like bristling every time I use labels, but binge eating or eating disorders, or if somebody has, you know, smoking habit or, you know, whatever habit they may be struggling with, there's always this fear of setbacks. Like, Oh, what if I fall back into it? You know, what if it comes back? Is that something that we should even be afraid of or how should we view setbacks? Well, I think it's, you know, again, like if we, if we see that our mind and our body just, they have a, a lot of momentum in favor of habits, like they are habitual machines for good reason to keep us alive. So often stuff will come back and that doesn't have to mean anything. And it doesn't like, I mean, if anything, it probably means that your brain works well, (laughs) like you have a good memory and your mind wants to bring it back, you know, but like anything, like everything we've been talking about the suffering in it is 100% the story we tell. And there's a lot of story. I mean, like, and a lot of it comes from, from even outside of our own heads. I mean, ultimately it's coming in our heads, but it's been given to us by, you know, things like 12 step programs, which have helped a ton of people and can be really amazing. But there's also this part of it that's like, you're on the wagon or you're off. You count your days. And if you fall off the wagon, you go back to day one. It's a very black or white you know, kind of mentality. And so we've sort of adopted that and a lot, and there's many other examples, but like we've kind of adopted that. And so just see, like, there's nothing inherently anything about like, say you, you, yeah, you've had so many days without your snacking habit or something. And then one day you snack, like it doesn't mean anything, but the meaning your mind attaches to it. And if, when people see that, then it's like, oh, okay, my mind started going back to snacking. I got caught up in it. I snacked again. End of story. And often when people see that even better is that they kind of learn something from it. It becomes an opportunity to kind of kind of reground in a sense in what they've seen. Like, oh, that's right. That's just my mind just spitted that, spit that out at me. Like it always had. And I got caught up in it. You know, like they almost come away from the quote unquote setback with greater clarity. So I can't see how there's anything inherently wrong with them. So 
not to create a very specific potential problem, but I, I do think what a lot of people might experience with that idea, which is so freeing and so incredible. But what about when people, what if people have that idea and then they're like, oh, like using that as an excuse to further engage, you know, with something they don't want to do. Cause then, then it's like, oh, well, you know, this can be a learning experience or this it's fine if I do this again, because it's meaningless. So might as well, you know, that, that whole voice. Yeah. So that definitely happens, right? Cause our mind, cause our mind gets in there and wants to like have it its way and it'll tell stories like that. But the thing is like, I think we, we know on some level and especially over time when we're doing that, when we're using eventually it's some, like it doesn't feel good. That's not freedom at all to say, oh, well, I guess, you know, yeah, it ha- setbacks happen. I guess I'll just do it again or, or, oh, no big deal. Maybe it'll happen 10 more times this week. You know, like that doesn't feel good. That doesn't feel anything like the freedom that we had from seeing that we are in our experience and that, you know, like, so there's this beautiful kind of feedback mechanism that's always happening when we feel further away from home when we're full of, when our mind is messing with us, like in that example, or we're full of ideas or rationalizations or concepts or thoughts that look real, we don't feel well. And we get, again, that's just an alarm. We get signs from all over the place. So either you fall back into your habit in a big way and that wakes you up and you have to, like you you just come full circle and get an opportunity to see through all that stuff, you know? So does that make sense? Like it, we can't, we can't get away. Cause I think sometimes people are afraid of, oh, I'm just going to lie to myself for life, or I'm just going to fool myself forever and then wreck my health in the meantime. Like we're wiser than that. We can't really fool ourselves for that long. Eventually we wake up to it and everything in our design is such that it wants to wake us up to that. So there is this idea that and we keep touching on that everything we're doing, like in the end, we're just seeking this state of coming home or being at peace in the moment. Two questions surrounding that. One is, what about for people where the current moment scares them? Because, you know, often we talk about how, you know, if you just be in the present moment, that there's no fear of the future or, you know, anxiety about the past or, or depression about the past. There's just that moment. But what if being in that, and maybe this brings me to the second question is, can honestly any person at any moment in theory be at peace in that moment? Because I think people, especially dealing with urges or dealing with physical pain or, you know, dealing with something they're finding very unpleasant, can they honestly be at peace in that moment? Like what if the current moment scares you? If the current moment scares you, you're not truly present like scares you, fear only comes from our mind and our stories. So it doesn't come from anything else or anyone else, any other place. It comes from from our psychology. So and that's the only thing we're ever feeling. So, or if a person, I think a lot of people, if, if they're experiencing like chronic pain, they're going to say, well, I have, I have pain and that's something physical. So I could never be at peace in the moment. I'm so grateful that I personally don't experience chronic pain, but like, you know, with that type of situation, is it the same, you know, mentality? Yes, because I'm grateful that I don't experience it also, but I do, I have more, you know, a lot of people in my community do. And our experience of pain 
it comes to us from thought. Now that doesn't mean stuff's not happening in your body and it doesn't mean you can think your way out of it. I'm not saying any of that, but every one of us knows chronic pain or not that when you, let's just use something very not chronic, like you stub your toe, it, like when you're focused on it and you're like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I did that. And you're like in it, it's a totally different experience than if you get distracted from that. We've all felt pain somewhat more or less in the background. Now, I mean, chronic pain, again, I, I have so much compassion for people that live with that, but it's actually probably even more relevant there. It's like, it's it's there in their life chronically, but their thinking is still moving all over the place. And everyone with chronic pain I've ever talked with sees this and says, yes, when my mood is in the toilet, when I'm like focused on the pain and I'm so upset and I'm trying to fix it, it is totally different than if I'm doing something that I love to do or if I'm just sitting or if my mind wanders away from the pain. So like that's, again, I'm not please don't ever hear that as like saying, oh, you should just think your way out of it or it's not real or anything like that. It's a real experience. But our experience, even of pain, is always moving at, at least a little bit. There's, all, there's always fluidity there. And when we know that, we experience it more. If we think, oh, pain, just like everything we've talked about other, you know, previously in this conversation around this, like, if we think it's different, if we think it's the exception, we're just going to experience it as the exception. But, you know, if we can kind of see, wow, what if this is, this is like that too, then we tend to see that a lot more. So, so like for the exception, you're saying if we see chronic pain is the exception. Yeah. Or any kind of health issue. Like if someone says, oh, well, everything she's saying is great, but I have chronic pain or I have this health issue and that's different. It's, you know, we're just going to experience it as different if that's what we believe about it. And if we're not kind of willing to be open to maybe it isn't. So even, even pain is coming. Our experience of pain is coming to us moment to moment by thinking. Okay. That is, ooh, I mean, that, that's like, I know we keep saying this, but it's such like revolutionary paradigm shifts to have about everything. So a really concrete example about the fad is like, with energy or sickness. Like I was talking with a friend of mine who was telling the story and I think we've all experienced this in our own way of he was super sick in bed with the flu and he was being waited on by his mom at the time. Like it was like back in his twenties or something and he's living at home and he's like, oh my God, like everything's horrible. And then a girl that he's interested in calls <laughs> and suddenly he felt no symptoms and literally within out, like this is extreme, but you know, like we've felt that or a funny scene comes on Netflix if we're sick in bed watching TV and like suddenly we don't feel our stuff for a minute. I mean, now again, I'm not saying, oh, if you have chronic pain, just do that. But but that's showing us that that's not any different than anything else we feel. It's showing us what's possible and how our mind moves. But we miss that because we're so caught up in, I have the flu, I have no energy, or I have pain, this is different. And then we just experience what we expect. It's it's so great. It's insane. I mean, I've, I've even heard, like, it been posited, you know, things like chronic fatigue, for example, is just, you know, this build up of, you know, that it's mostly not, not it's all in your head, but you know, it's mostly like all of this mental, you know, stress and rumination and just not having the energy because you don't believe you have the energy because of, you know, all of this mental stress and chatter and everything. I'm not trying to like give medical advice or anything. I'm just trying to put forward 
paradigm shifts, <laughs> new ways of looking, new ways of looking at things. So this is actually perfect coming to the, actually the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast. And it does tie into something that you discuss in your book. And that is, well, you talk about the role of love and gratitude and how engaging with that can be so beneficial for addressing habits and urges and changing how we experience the world. So I was wondering if you'd like to touch briefly on that. And then I have like my one, like really, really quick last question that relates to that. Yeah. What I think is so fascinating about love and gratitude from this paradigm is again, there we can practice them and we can foster them and all of that. And that's wonderful. But we can also kind of see that they're, they are what's there by default. That blew my mind to kind of hear this initially. Like we are full of love and gratitude every single moment of our entire lives, but it gets covered by the weather. So it's basically like the blue sky, right? So, so it, it's not that we're lacking in, in connectedness or love or gratitude or any of that. It's just that we're sometimes thinking over it and then we're staring at the clouds being like, why is this cloud here? I want my gratitude back. <laughs> and the gratitude's right there. It's just that the moving clouds are in front of it. So I just, I love talking about that. So I just think that's such a, such a cool thing to kind of leave people with, you know, like just consider. And, and again, we've all felt this. We've all felt moments where nothing in particular happens. Nobody in particular is in front of us or anything like that. And our mind just falls quiet. And we are, what we find waiting there for us is, is tons of gratitude. I never really thought about that, but it's so true that when you, oftentimes when you do reach that point of just silence or just peace, there is this feeling of overwhelming love and gratitude. And it does feel like maybe it was there all along that it was just hard to experience because of all of these other things. So, wow. (laughs) Well, thank you so much. But the last question I ask every single guest on this podcast, and it's just because I realized how important gratitude is for everything. So what is something, Amy, that you're grateful for? Oh my gosh. I'm grateful for so much. I'm my daughter's birthday is tomorrow. So I'm very much thinking of all that. She's turning 10 and I'm just so grateful for my family. So grateful that I have two healthy, happy kids and an amazing marriage and and really grateful that I stumbled upon this paradigm that we're talking about, you know, and that I get to spend my day talking about this kind of stuff with people like you. It's just, I can't, I can't even imagine. In my wildest dreams years ago, I could not even have imagined that it would be like this. So super grateful. Well, thank you so much, Amy. I am overwhelmingly grateful for your work, everything that you're doing. It is such a wonder and it is helping so many people. And I, I'm just so grateful for you. Amy does have a wonderful gift for our listeners and I'll, I'll put a link to it in the show notes, but she is actually providing the introduction and chapter one of her book that I keep talking about, The Little Book of Big Change. So I will put a link to that in the show notes. Again, the show notes for this episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash habits. And I'll put links to everything there. And in addition to that, Amy, how can people best follow your work, stay in touch if they want to know more? What are the best links for all of that? My main website is dramyjohnson.com, just dramyjohnson.com. I have a podcast and there's all kinds of free content there. 
And the main way that I share this paradigm is through my online school and community. It's called the Little School of Big Change, but there's links to all of that on my website. Awesome. Awesome. So I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And thank you so much for being here, for everything that you're doing. This was absolutely, we'll say it one last time, mind-blowing, wonderful, paradigm-shifting. Someone's going to have a fun game, like counting how many times we say (laughs) mind-blowing. I know. I I know. And then given, and then on top of that, all the irony of that, of course, it's our, our, our language, you know, us telling, you know, talking about all of this, but I think it'll be very revolutionary for a lot of people. So thank you so much. I know it has been for me. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It was great to talk with you. All right. Talk to you later. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.